Prime Minister, Chancellor, my Lords, ladies, gentlemen, colleagues, guests and friends of the University. It is a great pleasure and honour to welcome you to the Sheldonian Theatre for the Romanus Lecture this year. It is surely suspicious, no it's not true, it is surely auspicious It is surely auspicious that we are meeting beneath the magnificently restored and recently reinstalled Sheldonian ceiling. Not only because the rather drab Hessian cloud that hovered over us for so long has lifted, but also because of the allegorical theme of the panels that have replaced it so radiantly. They depict truth descending upon the arts and sciences to dispel ignorance from the university. Need I say more about our purpose? The Sheldonian provides a fitting setting for a series of public lectures, which for over a hundred years has drawn speakers of distinction to address us on important subjects. The series bears the name of its founder, George Romanus. He was born in Canada, though like our speaker today, his father was a Scottish clergyman. The family moved back to England when he was a small boy. Romanus made his name as an evolutionary biologist. He was both a friend and a colleague to Charles Darwin the 200th anniversary of whose birth we are celebrating this year. Romanus died in 1894, not long after endowing this lecture series, and he is buried a few hundred yards away from here in the Hollywell Cemetery. The first Romanus lecture was in 1892 and delivered by William Gladstone. Since then, several other British Prime Ministers, past, present and future, have followed Gladstone's lead. In fact, our speaker today is the seventh in that line. The topics, Prime Minister, on which your predecessors have chosen to address us have been varied and not always entirely obvious for a politician. In 1909, for example, Arthur Balfour chose to share with his audience some questionings on criticism and beauty. Perhaps politics has changed. On the other hand, Winston Churchill in 1930 might be considered to have chosen a subject of considerable relevance to our own times as well as his own. His Romanus lecture was entitled Parliamentary Government and the Economic Problem. Prime Minister, we are of course delighted that you are able to be with us today. Although it may truly be said that you need no introduction, that does not mean that you can escape one. Tradition dictates that it is the Vice-Chancellor of the University who has the privilege of both inviting the speaker and introducing him or her. I see no reason to forego that pleasure at this late stage of my own tenure. So, Gordon Brown is a graduate of the University of Edinburgh where he took a first in history. Research leading to a doctorate in published biography focused on the figure of James Maxton, a Scottish politician of note and coincidentally an ancestor, I believe, of the current registrar of this university. Dr. Gordon Brown's promising career as a university lecturer was overtaken by journalism and by politics. In 1983, he was elected MP for Dunfermline East, and he has been in the House of Commons ever since. In 1997, he became Chancellor of the Exchequer, a position he held for a decade before succeeding Tony Blair as Prime Minister in June 2007. We're honoured, Prime Minister, that you have found time among the many pressing demands of your office to be with us today in Oxford. 
may I now invite you to deliver your Romanus lecture on science and our economic future. Can I say, um, let me say first of all what a real pleasure it is to be in Oxford, to be here at the Sheldonian Theatre with such great history, and to be invited to give this uh, lecture in the memory of a great scientist, one of Charles Darwin's great friends, uh, and to follow in the footsteps of such a distinguished group of lecturers. Uh, I too was a university lecturer uh, for a small amount of time before I descended into politics. <laughs> U universities, as you know, stand for integrity, objectivity, impartiality, the disinterested pursuit of truth and knowledge, all the qualities you have to leave behind when you go into <laughs> politics. I'm also conscious that the first uh, Romani's lecture, as uh, Professor Hood has just told us, was 117 years ago in 1892. And it was Gladstone, then in his fourth administration, and by that time, 82 years old, uh, who gave an absolutely brilliant lecture. Every morning that I'm in Downing Street, I walk past a portrait of Gladstone, and it looks across at a portrait of Disraeli, and the two people look at each other every morning. It was said that if you came into Downing Street and met Gladstone, you went away thinking he was the wisest person in the world, but if you came into Downing Street and met Disraeli, such was his charm that you went away thinking you were the wisest person <laughs> in the world. Wise as uh, Gladstone was, I'm conscious uh, that he took a huge amount of time in his preparations for the Romani's lecture. The history books tell us it gave him more trouble than anything else he published. Oxford scholars were alerted. Gladstone's whole family were mobilized as research assistants. Lord Acton was summoned. I've resisted the temptation to summon Lord Patton, <laughs> or perhaps better still, Gail Trimble, who I congratulate on her success in University Challenge. Politics was, of course, a bit leisurely in these uh, days. Uh, Gladstone went to the House of Commons uh, uh, at one time when he was chancellor, and his budget statement consisted of only these words, there is nothing to report, and he sat down. <laughs> Something that is not possible, as you know, in this day and age. I believe we're at a time now where the work of academics and researchers uh, commands uh, even more respect than it does, uh, has in previous times. Uh, but I'm conscious that it wasn't always so. For a variety of reasons that you can understand, I've been looking at the works of Keynes in recent uh, weeks and the great advice that he gave to the governments of the day. Keynes, one of the greatest economists, one of the great academics, one of the greatest writers of our time, uh, who also tried to influence uh, governments with his ideas that eventually were seen to have been the right ideas for the time. The first time he sent his ideas into the Treasury, uh, I went into the Treasury Library when I became Chancellor, and the ideas sent in by Keynes, which were packaged up in the library in presentation form, on it was marked by the Permanent Secretary to the Treasury only three words, inflation, extravagance, bankruptcy. <laughs> and with that, his ideas were resisted. Keynes also went across to the United States of America, uh, and he tried to persuade the U.S. Uh, Treasury uh, Finance Minister of the value of his proposals. 
He arrived at the door of the Treasury in 1945 to be met by the Treasury Secretary, the politician then in charge. And Keynes had come there entirely on his own. And the Treasury Secretary said to him, where's your lawyer? And Keynes says, I don't, I don't have a lawyer. And the Treasury Secretary said, well, who does your thinking for you? <laughs> no wonder Keynes decided late in life, in his words, that politics was the survival of the unfittest. And he quoted Shelley's uh, great words about his mother-in-law applied now to politicians that they had lost the art of communication, but not, alas, the gift of speech. <laughs> now, 350 years ago, just a few yards before, just a few years before this theater was built, a small gathering of scientists who had first met here in Oxford during the English Civil War decided to establish themselves as a formal group. And they decided to meet weekly then in London to conduct, observe, and discuss their experiments. For many, this meeting, which led directly to the founding of the Royal Society, is seen as the birth of modern science in the world. It marked a fundamental change in how we thought about the natural world, no longer arguing on philosophical and theological grounds about how the world must be, but seeking through experiment, observation, and analysis, knowledge of how the world actually was, highlighting the truth that the freedom of thought vital to science and its progress was led by the development in Britain of the ideas of tolerance and then of liberty. Now that discipline of rational thought and the same joy of discovery founded on that tradition of liberty have delighted, challenged, and inspired generations of scientists ever since. When those Oxford scientists developed their empirical method three and a half centuries ago, it was more than simply an idea. It was an idea about ideas. It was an insurrection of rationality against dogma, after which the world could quite literally never be the same again. And the method that these scholars developed didn't just teach us what to think, they taught us how to think. The imagination, the intellect, and the skills of these men at this time and in this place set new rules that changed the world for good and indeed remain unchallenged to this day. And the whole world is still indebted to these giants of the British, British Enlightenment who met here 350 years ago. Now, in this room today, you who are their heirs and successors, I know all acknowledge their greatness. And you have access to knowledge and technology that they could never have dreamed of, yet which would not exist today had it not been for their astonishing legacy. I believe that you will, in our time and in our future, by your imagination, your intellect, and your skills, add greatly to the legacy of 350 years. So that is why I'm honored to be giving, be giving this prestigious lecture. It's fitting, I believe, as was said by John Hood, in the year in which we celebrate the 200th anniversary of the birth of the great genius Charles Darwin. And this lecture, given in honor of his great friend George Romanes, and taking place in what was, if not the birthplace, then certainly the breeding ground of experimental science, should address, I believe, some of the modern day issues of the study of science, to which Darwin and Romanes gave their lives work. Some, for many of us, the excitement of science captures our imagination. The first bangs and bubbles of these first school chemistry experiments, learning of the landmark discoveries and inventions that have changed the way we live, 
even the course of our history, because science redefines for us the boundaries of what we thought is possible. And especially in these times, very tough economic times for our world, we look to science to provide new solutions, new technologies, new opportunities to further our common goals and to advance as a society. Now today, what is the problem that we are trying to address? We are having to address for the first time the problems that are not just of a national or regional dimension, but of a wholly global dimension. We tend to think of the sweep of history as arching across many, many months and then years, as if each minute inevitably leads to the next before culminating in long-predicted events that we know as history. But sometimes the defining moments of history appear suddenly and with no clear warning, and the task of leadership is to name them, to shape them, and then to move forward into the new world that they create. And we know that we are living through the first financial crisis of a new global age. I think we know also it is more than that. We're in a new world, not just of global flows of capital, but where you have the global sourcing of goods, the global mobility of people, and through email, text, the web, instantaneous global communications, Suddenly, the new frontier is that there is no frontier for our ability to communicate with each other. And this technology, this ability to communicate with each other, and this new mobility for people to enjoy is also creating for the first time in human history the potential for a truly global society and a global citizenship. And this new global age brings huge opportunities that we can all see, but of course, it brings massive new insecurities as well. When I was in Washington a few months, months ago, there were demonstrations outside the International Monetary Fund when I was at a meeting to discuss the financial crisis. And these demonstrators had a sign, Worldwide Campaign Against Globalization. <laughs> and, and, you, and you can see what they, they meant. It wasn't as bad as the campaign in France in 2008, which said no to 2009. But you know what people mean. Today we're having to confront inescapable challenges which cannot be met without us working together on the global dimension. We need a means of ensuring financial stability across the world and then global prosperity. Everybody knows we have got to face up to addressing the problems of climate change and energy needs. We need to ensure people's personal security in a more mobile age. And we need to address the poverty and inequality that grievously scar the poorest parts of the world. Otherwise, we can never say that we have a globalization that is inclusive and sustainable. But surely, facing this challenge and these great events, we are fortunate to be able to sum up and summon up the best of scientific progress, to minimize the insecurity of the new world while we maximize the opportunities it presents. Whatever is likely to happen to the economy in this year or next, the world economy will certainly almost definitely double in size over the next 20 years. The people of China and India and Asia will become consumers for the first time, buying products from the rest of the world. If it is to double, that means twice as many businesses as today, twice as many opportunities as today. And among the winners in the globalization race, will be those industrial countries that can create the high value added, technology driven products and services, the creative technologies 
and train people to the highest standards of skills to make and create them. So the economic role of science and technology is going to be of more importance to our country than ever. And when it comes to creating all the challenges of a global society, which require us to eliminate poverty, to tackle climate change, mitigate the impact of disease around the world, it is science that gives us hope of a global and sustainable approach and response to the challenges of food and water shortages, of preserving our environment for future generations, of reducing death and suffering from infectious, malignant and degenerative diseases. These are the challenges that only science can answer. Isidore Isaac Rabbi, the US physicist who won the Nobel Prize in 1944, said that science is a great game where the playing field is the universe itself. And that is an inspiring image. It seems to me that science is also both the great achievement of humanity and the definition of its promise ahead. And so today, great responsibility lies here with you as the guardians of our understanding of the miraculous reality that surrounds us every day. At the time of the Enlightenment, it was thought that all scientific progress, all acquisition of knowledge was good. It was, you could say, a view of science as a means of social progress, much as Adam Smith's view of markets as a means to economic prosperity. But we know now it's not quite as simple as that. As Martin Luther King once remarked, our scientific power has outrun our spiritual power. We have guided missiles and misguided men. And we saw in the last century how humanity tarnished the reputation of science by associating it with some of the darkest moments in human history, in which science was at the service of the most cruel and destructive regimes, and the power of science and scientists was grossly abused. And when I look at the situation still unfolding in our financial markets around the world, I'm struck by the perils. We have seen clearly and spectacularly that unregulated markets have the potential for great and widespread harm, that the pursuit of wealth can be separated from the exercise of responsibility, that free markets can, if not guided, become value-free markets. So too, we've experienced the potential of unregulated science to cause harm and seen how in science, as in economics, our progress can outstrip our humanity. And while every generation has to learn and relearn the risks and dangers, we cannot, however, walk away from the potential of science. Any more than the recent failure of international regulation in the global economy means that we should give up on the principle of free markets as we seek to make markets fairer. But at this defining moment, in the modern day history, as we develop for the first time a fully global economy and society, it is time to refocus our intellectual resources to reflect better the goals of our society, to move away from an economy centered so heavily on financial services, on in finding ever more arcane ways of delivering and pricing complex derivatives to one that is broader based with a new focus on science and innovation. And a country whose young people are more inspired by those who give it to the world than by those who take from it. And a nation that values Britain's great history of scientific achievement and then backs Britain's capacity for scientific discovery. Quite simply, we know that the frontiers of social and environmental progress, both here in Britain and across the world, depend upon science but they also depend on the boundaries placed on science by society. Getting the boundaries right is challenging, difficult, and painful, often requiring the most delicate and finely balanced of ethical judgments. 
but we cannot afford to duck the challenge just because it will be hard. For while not everyone is in the business of science, science is everybody's business. When Gandhi described the great sins of the world, he spoke first, of course, of politics without principle, which you'll understand. He spoke about wealth without work, but he also spoke of science without humanity. And I believe it's precisely and only by enlisting science in the service of humanity that we can hold out the hope of reaching the progressive goals that we have set for our time. And that is our challenge in the years ahead. Now, British science, from the double helix to the MRI scanner, from medicine to global communications, from the telephone to the television, from the origin of computer science to the creation of the World Wide Web, British science is, as we know, at the world's best, well-placed to make a contribution to these great progressive goals. And that is one of the reasons why I feel so proud to have been given the chance at this time to lead the country I love. Time and time again, British scientists and British inventors continue to pioneer the great advances. British scientists, as everybody knows here, first with cloning, a British research team led by one of the world's greatest heart surgeons, Magdi Yacoub, for the first time grew part of a human heart from stem cells, a significant step towards the goal of growing whole replacement hearts from stem cells. And whether it's the long reach of British scientists in eventifying three new planets outside our own solar system, or new ways of growing gallium nitride for super-efficient LEDs, already lighting up the facade of Buckingham Palace, and costing less to run than an electric kettle, British scientists are continuously breaking new gr ground. And let's just take one recent example. Pioneering British research that includes the provision of digital infrastructure in remote areas, which is enabling the testing of new technology with a sensor device that can gather data on air and soil temperatures and informs all the crucial decisions that need to be made about planting, fertilization, irrigation, pest and disease control to help some of the poorest farmers in the poorest continents of the world maximize the yields of the crops they grow. And let's just bring it closer to home. For of course, British science is not just helping people across the world, it's protecting jobs and livelihoods in Britain too. British scientists are using meteorological data to predict that midges bearing blue tongue virus would be carried to the specific parts of the United Kingdom from the continent that enabled special vaccination of livestock to take place and saved nearly half a billion pounds, creating 10,000 jobs. And it's always the case that some scientists are seeing possibilities, others are finding it difficult to catch up with. As some of you all may remember from your history books, in 1878, two years after Alexander Graham Bell had invented the telephone, the chief engineer at the British Post Office is reported to have said he saw no need for it in Britain. We still had plenty of messenger boys. <laughs> Though others have not seen the full potential of the work either, such as the Boeing engineer who complained there never will be a bigger plane built, as he stood proudly alongside his creation, a twin-engined aeroplane that held only 10 people. As you more than any other audience know, it is only through trial and error that great advances can be made. Some of you know the story of Thomas Edison, who went on to invent the light bulb and was asked whether it was true that he had first endured 100 failures. No, replied Ed Edison, that wasn't 100 failures, it was 100 small steps towards success. And thousands of trials and millions of errors on, 
we have a scientific record that we can all be proud of. 78 Nobel Prize winners in science from Britain. Four of the top universities in the world are British, including, of course, this great institution here at Oxford. A higher share of our growth today is delivered by science-based innovations than in any other country, including the United States. And it means that today the UK is second only to America on the majority of leading scientific indicators and our science is the most productive and efficient of the G8 countries. Is that UK scientists remain amongst the most outward looking and globally connected as I've seen today visiting laboratories and institutions at this university. With just 1% of the world's population, we undertake 5% of the world's science, produce 9% of the world's scientific papers, and the UK's foreign-born adult population are around a fifth of our scientists, over half of them originally from Asia, in particularly from countries like China and India. And this is where we are. The question is now how we build on this strength to make Britain the best country in the world in which to be a scientist in the months and years to come. And the answer, I believe, is three parts. First, we entrench investment in science as a national priority, meaning our commitment, maintaining our commitment to continuing our path of raising investment in science across the board. Second, we raise the status of science in education and bring in more people with science qualifications into teaching. And third, we show that science matters to society and provide even more vigorously a positive public debate about the joy of discovery and the proper role of science in the service of humanity to increase public understanding and awareness and harness the power of science to challenge to tackle some of the great challenges our society now faces. And let me just say something about each of these points. First, we need a new extended partnership between science and industry. That will be supported by record investment in science in the years ahead. It's true to say that 10 years ago, we were suffering from an, a legacy of underfunding, especially in research, and I saw the dilapidated facilities and the low morale and the poor relationships with business. And we've seen the urgent need for change and then the huge value of investment in society. We set out a 10-year framework for investing in science, at least in line with the trend growth of the economy. And since 1997, investment in science has more than doubled. Our investment in the research base has repaired the physical infrastructure of the laboratories, created a critical mass of professional capacity and knowledge transfer, and I hope put research funding on a financially sustainable footing. And let me be clear, we will meet our 10-year commitment to maintain science funding. Investment will focus on pure fundamental science as well as applied science. We will invest not just in specific projects, but also crucially right across the science base that underpins our international reputation. And let me also be clear, in meeting our 10-year commitment, we will maintain the ring fence that we have placed around science funding, protecting science from competing demands in the short term and providing the sustained support that a world-class research community needs to deliver the world-class results we want to see in the medium and long term. Some say this is not the time to invest, but the bottom line is surely this, that a downturn is no time to slow down investment in the future, but to build more rigorously for the future. And so we will not allow science to become a victim of the recession, but rather focus on developing it as a key element of our path to recovery. But I believe we must do even more if we were to win the battle for Britain's future in this globally competitive age. In recent weeks, uh, Paul Drayson and John Denham 
have raised important questions on how we best focus on areas with significant growth opportunities in the coming decades. The debate about how science can help us out of the downturn is a crucial one. This does not mean compromising on fundamental research, but it will, as John Denham has said, mean working with scientists and those funding research to identify potential priorities and ensure that the research base works as much as possible to support them. Now, across the world in this downturn, other nations are also stepping up their investment in science. It's fascinating that President Obama is now doubling Americans' basic science spend. His economic stimulus package includes a large amount of investments in research. Japan has an ongoing spending science target of 1% of GDP. China is growing fast from a low base. And even the smaller economies are providing an emerging challenge. Iran has increased its share of scientific publications tenfold in 10 years. And Finland, a small country which invested extensively in science and technology while facing recession in the 90s, has the highest average impact for its scientific publications. Now, the experts tell us that whatever happens in the next two decades, there will be as many as a billion new skilled jobs to compete for, many of them requiring scientific expertise. If we turn our back on that opportunity and batten down the hatches, retreat into a regressive protectionism, we will all be poorer. So to meet the challenges of globalization and seize the opportunities it presents, we must now invest in the key sectors where Britain is well placed to lead. Low carbon technologies, the NHS and pharmaceuticals for scientific and medical research, from education to the digital and creative industries. And we need as a nation to secure more than our share of jobs, trade and business in these sectors. With science, engineering and technology now more than ever before, the foundation of that success for the future, this will require a new focus backed by priority national investment in skills, research and infrastructure, in major physical and intellectual capacity building as we make this fundamental shift in the underlying structure of our economy. So, in summary, we will invest more than at any time in our country's history. We will make the next decade a decade where British genius can create the low-carbon, high-skill, digital economy that we need. Our future must be one that gives us the benefits of globalization while minimizing its risks. And it must be an economy more about robotics engineering than about financial engineering, more about low-carbon than high-finance, a future where the financial sector is the servant of industry and never its master. I can also announce that we will be looking for ways of working through the research councils with our American partners, way that will be of mutual benefit to us to take advantage of additional American investment arising from President Obama's economic stimulus package. Now, excellent links between America and Britain on science and innovation already exist. We've announced four million for three exciting new UK-US science bridge projects on photonics, on energy, and healthcare. And these are bringing together six top UK universities with centers of excellence in the States. And I want to see more of such new transatlantic partnerships, as I want to see developed the increasing links we have right across Europe uh, with all European countries that are members of the European Union. Our approach is not picking winners. It's a clear strategic assessment of our future. It's based on the strengths and comparative advantages that Britain already has is to create a framework for priorities for long-term investment and prepare our country to emerge from the downturn to the strongest possible position. In recent years, too, the relationship between business and universities has strengthened. 
and I thank Lord Sainsbury for his groundbreaking work, which has given us the chance to give more support to business-facing universities, setting targets for knowledge transfer from research councils, and the early-stage high-tech enterprises we have today are the strongest we have had for 30 years. And if the downturn has brought a precipitous decline in funding for spin-offs, and the venture capital market is now failing us just when it's most needed, we understand that the availability of this capital is key, and to ensure the value and intellectual property on, in our research base is developed, and to enable new products to come to market, it is vital that our portfolio of early-stage, high-value businesses survive the downturn and secure our long-term future competitive advantage. So we must act so we do not lose value, and I can assure you that Lord Drayson is urgently looking at early-stage, high-value, intellectually property companies to remove the barriers they face and to help position them to develop further as the economic cycle turns. But to secure the long-term future of science, we need to do a second thing, and that's to ensure we produce the greatest science, scientists of tomorrow who will follow in the paths of those today. There will be almost three million science, mass, and technology-related jobs in Britain by 2017. So we are going to need to unlock more of the best scientific talent in the years ahead. And to do that, we've got to improve scientific education. One of the biggest stumbling blocks in science education is that only a minority of schools offer three separate sciences, as opposed to combined science qualifications. That this significantly impacts on the likelihood of a student getting A-level grades at a good level, or indeed even sitting STEM subject A-levels in the first place. In the last two years, we've seen in Britain the first consecutive increase in take-up of physics at A-level, but that has followed a 20-year decline. In a world that now sees 1.2 million Chinese and Indian engineering graduates entering the global jobs market every, every year, we have to do better. Those who don't do an A-level in science are ill-equipped to study it at university. So right from age 14, this lack of options for studying science in our schools is preventing young scientists from developing their talents. And it makes it much harder for those for state schools to study these subjects at our leading universities. And historically, a real problem has been the relatively small number of specialist science teachers in mainstream comprehensive schools. Teachers who would have the in-depth subject knowledge to teach single subject science and to stretch and challenge the brightest student. Now, in the downturn, we want to change this equation. We will guarantee that where redundancies are declared in industries with a number of suitably qualified graduates who are interested in teaching maths and science, we will arrange for personal support for them to do so. Because for them, for our young people, and for the future of Britain, we must seize the opportunity to bring new people with science and maths qualifications into the teaching profession. And I want to set a new national ambition that this country will educate the next generation of world-class scientists. And to do so, we will work towards all pupils having access to single-subject science teaching with a guarantee that 90% of all state schools will offer this within the next five years. And alongside this, we will set a clear aim to double by 2014 the number of pupils in state schools taking triple science. And this will mean over 100,000 pupils a year. And since we've already passed our initial A-level mass entry target for 2014, we will replace that with a new target of 80,000 young people taking A-level mass within the next five years. From September 11, the new Diploma in Science will be available in schools and colleges. 
and that will offer a fantastic opportunity to get young people involved in doing science while working towards a high quality qualification valued by employers. But of course we need to produce the engineers of tomorrow as well. This is not just wrong and absurd that engineering, engineering is valued less as a subject and too many young people seem to regard it as unattractive. When engineers built our history and they will build our future. And so many of the great challenges we face require engineering solutions from the challenge of designing low carbon energy and transport systems or building the new digital networks. So I want our young people growing up with an understanding of the value society places on engineering and scientific discovery and on our young scientists focusing on the many socially productive uses of science. So improved science education doesn't just mean a better workforce for tomorrow. It will determine our scientific literacy as a nation and that will shape the crucial debates which set the societal boundaries within which science operates. My first, third and last priority is a real duty on the scientific community to explain with the public the issues and enhance the role and prestige of science in society. We need the support of public, uh, the general public, for scientific research and discovery. And in return for that, our scientists get the academic freedom from which great things can happen. Yet there is a challenge to our scientific community today. Over half of those who responded to last year's attitude survey on science said science was too specialist for ordinary people to understand. So we have to explain science, people to see science as something that is not elitist. Some of you may have heard the story that Einstein went round Britain trying to explain science uh, to the ordinary public and did a nationwide tour visiting all the cities of the country. And he gave a standard speech, uh, repeating the same speech uh, about the great values of science uh, to the different audiences that came to meet him. And because he had such a fertile imagination, of course, Einstein got bored giving the same speech to the same audience. So one night, his chauffeur, who was driving him around, offered to take his place because he, could, he had memorized his speech off by heart to take his place and give the speech instead of Einstein. So Einstein sat in the audience. The chauffeur, George, was standing here giving the lecture. And it went very well until one thing happened that hadn't happened in previous nights. The chairman of the meeting asked for questions from the audience. <laughs> and the first question was, what is the relationship between uh, your theory of relativity and quantum mechanics. And George the chauffeur stood there and said, ladies and gentlemen, this question is so easy, I'm going to ask my chauffeur to come up from the audience and answer it. <laughs> now, the So What, So Everything campaign, which the government launched last month, is aiming to do what Einstein failed to do, to present science not as a list of facts to know or learn, but as a way of looking at the world around us that can excite the popular imagination, to invite people to think about the joy of discovery and science as it affects their world, highlighting the role of science in the achievement of popular heroes, like Britain's Olympic winning cycling team and the Formula One world champion Lewis Hamilton, who've been able to push at the boundaries of possibility because of the power of science and technology. It's an open project designed to involve and inspire young scientists all the way from primary school to higher and further education and to capture their imagination so that more people choose to embrace science and scientists get the recognition they deserve. 
So we want to create a modern scientific culture for our times, just as in the 19th century when scientists like Michael Faraday and James Clerk Maxwell were the celebrities of their day. And as we develop this public appreciation of science, we must build on Britain's strong tradition of debating rigorously the ethical issues surrounding science. In the past, you know, I believe that the image of science has suffered in the public mind through initial experiences of three big controversial issues, animal testing, GM crops, and stem cells. And much of the media coverage that has dominated people's image of science has served the cause not of legitimate science progress. But I believe we are learning lessons from this, and we are now seeing a better and more balanced debate with the public. Indeed, we should be reassured about the way that we can now approach these difficult issues and come up with means by which these controversial areas can be both discussed and dealt with. It's a central component of any optimism about the future of science in Britain. And I'm sure we would all agree that having the scientific capacity to do something doesn't necessarily mean it's right, any more than the risk of technology falling into evil hands makes the creation of that technology necessarily wrong. The real challenge is to establish in open, reasoned discussion and debate the necessary balance and effectiveness of the regulations and restrictions that science imposes on society, that science is imposed upon by society. We have to make the positive case for science as together we address the great challenges of the world. We can make the cutting-edge science the informed ally of moral purpose, not as it sometimes is the misunderstood enemy of moral principle. So it's important we examine and show that we are examining issues as they arise through the data, through facts, not prejudice, with a full understanding of the social context in which we are operating. Scientists need to recognize the reasonable concerns that others have about what they do. For example, to address the difficult questions around animal testing, we've established the National Center for the Three R's, which promote the replacement, the refinement, and the reduction of the use of animals in research. Core principles first developed that seek to minimize the use of animals, maximize the search for alternatives, wherever possible reducing or replacing animal tests, and refining any processes and techniques that are used to minimize hurt and harm. Now, more recently, we have faced a difficult question on the use of stem cells. In the 10 years since James Thomson's discovery, scientists have shown that embryonic stem cells have the potential to help create replacement cells for tissues and organs, including the heart, liver, and pancreas. And Britain, to our credit, is at the forefront of this research, here in this university in particular, and responsible for much of the progress worldwide. We have had a full and open debate in our society, patiently and with full regard for religious concerns, and have sought to introduce clear laws which permit the use of stem cells within a clear managed legal framework, but subject to the strictest supervision and respectful of people's ethical positions. For me, stem cell research is an inherently moral endeavor, that with sincere respect for religions, beliefs, or different faiths, and within a framework that secures a deep commitment to the highest ethical standards, can save and improve the lives of thousands and ultimately millions of people. And already, as many of you know, it is in practical use for conditions including leukemia and heart disease. It makes it possible to contemplate new and effective treatments and cures for diseases that have afflicted mankind for centuries, including Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and the various forms of cancer. 
that have touched almost every British family and are very much in the minds of people today. To relieve some of the worry that often goes alongside the heartache of cancer, we will this year remove prescription charges for those battling cancer. But the real hope lies in cancer treatment itself. And I have the ambition that I believe we all have, as has President Obama, who has stated it this week, that in this generation we will seek and find a cure for cancer. And it's for this cure and for cure of other diseases that our country is now spending over 10 years, 15 billion pounds, more money than ever on medical research. And Britain and the USA are actually leading in research on cancer treatment. There are more cancer trials here in Britain than anywhere on the planet. Part of that is because of the enormous generosity of the British public in making charity donations. Part of it is the result of the single greatest comparative advantage Britain holds, and that is the ability to do trials inside the major organizations of the NHS. No other country has a healthcare system like ours that offers the opportunity to be a world leader in medical research and hence a world leader in life science. And with that comes the potential for growth and jobs that will help to rebalance our economy and fund future investments in research. And the new government office for life science we've just set up is precisely to ensure we realize fully the potential of this leadership position. Medical science is moving swiftly. Already we can see the implications for how as a society we need to manage that. The analysis of DNA is evolving very fast. Looking into the future, we must now anticipate developing new cancer me medicines that can take account of genetic difference, stratifying cases and perhaps populations by the genomic or DNA makeup, targeting drugs for cohorts with specific characteristics is now possible. To achieve this, medical scientists will need to get the permission of patients for access to DNA records. There are signs, of course, of people's willingness to participate. One of breakthrough breast cancer's current projects has seen over 100,000 women in the UK volunteering to take part, including offering blood samples for genomic analysis. Women taking part have been in and grandchildren to get involved. So if ever they too develop cancer, the potential to treat them would be much enhanced. And there is a new direct-to-consumer model developing via the internet, mostly outside the UK, with a number of companies now offering DNA testing or profiling services, and through experts and practitioners in genetic testing, regard it still as a niche market, consumer awareness of this appears to be growing. So it's clear that the analysis and handling of genomic information is one of the most radical and far-reaching developments in current medical science. And we have to ensure, as a society, that as the opportunities for people to access this information spread, the regulation and boundaries for its use and control evolve just as rapidly. But it is hard for me to see uh, how, with the appropriate safeguards in place, the potential for genomic information is not a great 21st century moment, a vast expansion of the boundaries of scientific understanding, holding breathtaking possibilities for the future effectiveness of medicine in Britain and across the world. And that is the true power of science, working in the service of humanity. Today, every major country in the world is focusing resources and talent on building its scientific capability for the future of its people. And we should thank our scientists for all they are doing, celebrate the enormous generosity of spirit that they have shown, like that of Jonas Salk, who developed the vaccine for polio and refused to patent it because he said it would be like patenting the sun. 
or Oxford's own Tim Berners-Lee, whose gift of the internet to the world has truly brought people closer than ever before, or John Silston and his team who opened up the path-breaking research in the Human Genome Project to every scientific researcher around the world. Now, many of the challenges we face are international. These global problems will require global solutions, and we have to play our part in supporting the work of an international scientific community. That's why we will create a new role for science in international policymaking. We will appoint the first ever chief scientific advisor at the Foreign Office. They will work with Hillary Clinton's chief science advisor and with other partners around the world. And we will place science at the service of the growing international agenda for action to achieve the Millennium Development Goals. I'm going to see President uh, Obama on Tuesday uh, in Washington. And you may have seen the office of the White House uh, on uh, television with the desk at the center of it, which was actually made in, in Britain and given as a gift to the President of the United States in the late 19th century. And when Harry Truman was President of the United States, he had a sign on his desk that I think everybody has heard about, which said, the buck stops here. But there was a second sign on Harry Truman's desk which said, always do right. It will encourage your friends and astonish everybody else. <laughs> I think the message is that we must always try to do right. With the strength of our scientific community, our commitment to invest in the future of science, our determination to build a global partnership of nations succeeding together in building an international hub for scientists in Britain around the world, and this great city and this great university at its focal point for the future, just as it has been in the past. We are at a defining moment in our history. Our science can advance and create a new world that is better than the last. As Darwin might have said, the origin of our future is at stake, and I truly believe that British science can answer the call, and with it we can secure not just our economic future, but our future as a society for generations to come. It has been a privilege to address you. Thank you very much.